we can have absolute moral convictions in this world, but judgment has to be maybe not suspended, but postponed or deferred until the next life and mm -hmm. kind of having a more conscious separation between, you know, the city of man and the city of God, if you will. Ready to get smarter? I hope so, because today's guests bring some incredible foreign policy expertise and global religious knowledge to the mix. The voice you just heard was Shadi Hamid, who for nine years has been a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he's published four books, including most recently, Islamic Exceptionalism, shortlisted for the 2017 Lionel Gelber Prize. Shadi stays busy. He's a contributing editor for The Atlantic, vice chair of the board of directors for the Project on Middle East Democracy, and a member of the World Bank's Middle East and North Africa Advisory Board. He's also spoken twice at Faith Angle and will be speaking for us again this fall. And one thing I've noticed consistently in hearing him is that in addition to an abundantly clear command of the facts, and you'll hear that today from start to finish, is an unusually calm and rooted demeanor. A recent American Affairs piece of Shadi's linked in the show notes is entitled Left Populism, and the rediscovery of agonistic politics. That term agonistic reflects a scholar who sufficiently respects the man on the street and takes religion's role in national and global politics seriously enough to recognize that the yearnings of young men and women throughout the Middle East and North Africa and their political manifestations in many cases also reflects a kind of spiritual longing. Joining Shadi to help guide today's conversation is Sarah Wildman, deputy editor at Foreign Policy Magazine, and a Faith Angle journalist who's attended some of our forums in the past. Sarah hosts her own podcast, First Person, and in the newest episode, she brings on Shadi for a follow-up conversation that takes a deep dive, looking at some of the recent changes in Egyptian politics, including the tragic case of its first democratically elected president, the late Mohamed Morsi. In the show notes, we link to that conversation, as well as some of Shadi's other writings on populism, immigration, and a fascinating podcast conversation with the brilliant atheist philosopher Sam Harris. So buckle up for a rich conversation that touches everything from the resurgent role of global Islam to the revealing relationship between nationalist populism and Muslims to Sharia and the reform movements in North Africa and the Middle East to global Christianity and the role of religion in Western democracies and finally to the enduring question of how deep religious convictions can also align with more lasting expressions of public pluralism. Sarah opens the conversation. Well, it's an honor to be here, Ashadi. I've followed your work for a long time and your Twitter feed, <laughs> which is, okay. uh, has a robust following. Um, I actually wanted to kick off by looking at even just the title of your book, the word Islamic exceptionalism. How did you choose the word exceptionalism? Yeah, so actually that wasn't the initial title, and actually previous title was kind of boring, so I'm happy that I made this shift, but I was a little bit concerned that people might misunderstand it. But then again, I was like, well, if I'm making an argument, let me own it and let me put the argument right there in the title and just like see where it goes, and I think that was the right choice. But uh, And it's also, I think, important it's always been important for me to make the point that exceptionalism, something being exceptional is not a bad thing from my standpoint. It's a value neutral term. It just means that there's something that's distinctive 
than other things in particular ways. And it's better for us to acknowledge difference and to acknowledge exceptionalism than to pretend that it doesn't exist. So Islam, in my view, and this is the argument, uh, plays an outsized role in public life. It has played an outsized role in public life, and it will continue to for the foreseeable future. Um, Islam has proven to be resistant to secularization, I think, for a number of different factors. And that can be bad, and we've seen examples of how this outsized role in politics can have negative consequences in, say, the Middle East. But I think we should also acknowledge that religion playing a prominent role in public life can also be a good thing, including for the people who believe in that religion, that it provides social cohesion, a sense of community, a sense of purpose, uh, so on and so forth, right? Um, you know, you break in for a second. I mean, one of the things you argue early in the book, which is really interesting and I hadn't seen laid out quite this way before, was that the combination of Muhammad being a statesman himself and that the origin story of Islam was actually one of intertwining of public-private meant that invariably it would run up against the difference between the Judeo-Christian world. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I think the founding moments of religions matter. And this Prophet Muhammad was around a long time ago, 14, uh, 14 centuries ago. But you can't escape the founding moment, especially since as Muslims, we're supposed to emulate the Prophet Muhammad. He's supposed to be a model for everyday behavior um, and, and devotion to God and so on. So, you know, if you look at Muhammad's example and what he did at that time, you can't just ignore it. You can't just dismiss it and put it to the side. You have to contend with it. And Prophet Muhammad, he wasn't just a politician. He, he was also a head of a proto-state in, in Medina, and he was also a state builder. So I think those are different elements of something that's quite important, that he is very much directly involved in what it means to construct a state and what it means to construct a community of, of people of different ethnicities, but also different religions. It wasn't just Muslims. Uh, there were other communities that were in the Arabian Peninsula. So, and this is in contrast to, to Jesus, as we know, who uh, didn't play, who, who didn't govern um, and was a dissident against a reigning state. So for me, that's important because if we're looking at the New Testament, it's no surprise that the New Testament doesn't have a lot to say about public law and governance because it's not speaking to those particular concerns. That's not what Jesus and his, and his followers were dealing with. And also later on, the early Christians were not in a position to govern until several centuries later. On the other hand, whether or not you believe the Quran is divine, I think we can all agree that the Quran, like any book that's revealed at a particular time, is speaking to an audience, right? And if that audience um, in 7th century Arabia was thinking about how to govern and how to build a community, then the Quran is going to have verses that talk about public law and governance. But there's something about that, too. I mean, you just said if we whether or not we believe the Quran is divine. I actually think you should hinge on that for a moment because mm. obviously the community of believers of Muslims does believe it's not only divine, that it's the word of God. And that is yeah. a divergence as well from both the Old and New Testament. Yeah, totally. So so this is quite distinctive, I would say, in that Islam theologically requires uh, so 
The Quran wasn't just the word of God. It was God's actual speech. That's the way I, I generally characterize it. In other words, every single letter and word in the Quran is directly directly from God. There's no human intermediary. There's no human authorship. Muhammad didn't kind of put in his own thoughts. And that is quite a bit different, again, from Christianity in the sense that the New Testament is uh, is often perceived, by, uh, especially by evangelicals, uh, as the word of God. But there is still an acknowledgement of human authorship. We knew that different people wrote different parts of the Bible. So that is an important difference. That said, I mean, as I was learning, you know, for this book and, and since since the book has come out, I've engaged more and more with um, Christian friends and interlocutors. And I think Muslims sometimes make the wrong comparison between the books that um, the equivalent of the Quran and Christianity is not the New Testament. It's, it's Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. So when people say, well, you know, Muslims sometimes when they're being critical of Christianity, they're like, well, oh, the New Testament is not from God, whatever. But that's that's misunderstanding the role of the New Testament mm -hmm. in the kind of Christian universe. But I do think – but to go back to what, what that means for Islam, that Muslims believe that the Quran is God's actual speech, it doesn't mean that you have to take the Quran literally because ultimately – even if it's God's actual speech, it's still up to humans to interpret that. And there is quite a rich diversity of interpretation throughout 14 centuries of Islamic history. And I would even say that um, we don't have access to God's perfect true intent because once, once a holy book is dropped down to this temporal world, in a sense, the human role is there from the very beginning because it's humans who have to interpret mm -hmm. God's speech and that's a fundamentally flawed enterprise and no one can do it perfectly and no one has access to what God actually thought or intended, right? So, um, so in that sense, from that very moment, Muslims have been disagreeing. They might agree on the creed, but they disagree on how to interpret various aspects of the Quran. So one thing I always try to be clear about is just because it's perceived as God's actual speech, it doesn't mean that you're resigned, if you will, to a very strict literalist interpretation of the Quran. I remember the line back in divinity school um, that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are there are those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who do not. Um, but really, of course, it's uh, – you would say next, you know, uh, there, there, there are those who believe in God and those who do not. And, you know, if we take the sociology for a minute of, of, of Islam, if there are about 1.5, 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, maybe 1.5 billion Sunni, one, maybe 300 million Shia, something like that. Hmm. There are, what, two and a half billion Christians in the world. Then the, the pie chart starts to look more interesting after that, but the numbers are large. And that uh, sometime from now, if you were to guess in 2050, demographers do this, there's still going to be very large categories in both of those camps. You know, you have to reckon with that, that sociology, that fact. How do you think, Shadi, about the balance of Islam, the sociology and numbers versus Islam, the religion versus Islam, the politics? 
Yeah. Well, so, I mean, one thing is that the Muslim share of the overall global population is increasing. And I think, and certainly increasing in certain places, and we can talk about that later, what that means for, say, Europe and perceptions of of high, high levels of Muslim immigration, right? And I think there is also this, um, how do we talk about Muslims versus Islam? And this is an interesting debate when it comes to how we define Islamophobia, a word that is being used more and more. And I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere in between on this debate because I think there's, it's understandable if some people don't like Islam as, as a set of ideas and value propositions, just like some people don't like Christianity and some people don't like Judaism. And if you if you're talking about, say, hardcore secularists, many of them, I think, reserve at least more of their ire for Islam because simply because Islam is more politically present. Christianity, at least in the Western world, seems to be on the decline. So if you're a Western secularist, especially in Europe, where Christ- levels of, of you know, church attendance and, and ritual practice are very, very low, you're not going to be freaking out about Christianity's role in politics. But you are going to be more concerned about Islam's role in politics because it's, it's more visible, right? And on the rise. So, like, in terms of, in terms of how, you know, I try to be respectful of that, that there are legitimate reasons for people who really think that secularism is the only way forward to be concerned about how to integrate or accommodate Islam's role in public life, right? Mm -hmm. I do think that anti-Muslim bigotry, when it's focused on Muslims being a problem, that's, that's, that's a little bit of a different thing. And, and oftentimes they're interrelated, but they're not exactly the same thing, you know? So for example, uh, you know, Sam, Sam Harris is someone who comes up in these kinds of discussions, the, the, the new atheist philosopher, and I've, I've been on his podcast and we've engaged in some dialogue about this, and people have criticized me for even engaging in dialogue with him because he's, he's controversial. But I think that, that Sam Harris, he's not a fan of Islam as a, as a set of ideas or as a, as a, as a religion, but if there were more secular Muslims, I don't think that Sam Harris has a problem with Muslims per se, right? If, so I don't know if that, but obviously it gets blurry. And then mm-hmm. how do we how do we find a way to talk about that? And then, and also just the fact that whenever we're talking about Islam, there are certain things that don't translate well into into a Western context. And this is when Sharia comes up as this kind of bugaboo of like Sharia this, Sharia that. And I and I also try to sympathize and say, well, people, it is hard for um, your ordin- ordinary Americans to really grasp what Sharia is because there is no equivalent in Christianity. The closest mm-hmm. you have is canon law, but canon law is still very different than Sharia for it's a number. It's closer to halakha, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what's interesting in the book is that you argue that Sharia law, that Prophet Muhammad himself, that all of this was actually speaking to a much more modern religion than the origin story of Christianity or Judaism. And I'm curious about how you see Sharia as a modern. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So one of the counterintuitive points that, that, I, that I make is that Islam, at least in a certain sense, is the most modern of the monotheistic religions, and which might contradict or might seem to contradict what I was just saying earlier. But when we look at why 
so many Muslims and in many Muslim majority countries, a majority of Muslims still hold on to the importance of Islam speaking to economic and political issues and social issues in a very in a very present way. Mm-hmm. It's because it's, um, Islam has been able to adapt to the modern context and it, it still has a lot to say for modern politics. In other words, Muslims don't have to choose between being fully modern and fully Muslim. And so a couple examples of this is that there is a strong egalitarian streak in Islam's founding moment. This idea that Islam transcends tribal and ethnic divisions and you move you move beyond these more primordial affiliations and then you have this more let's say ideolo- ideological but not in the pejorative sense ideological umbrella that inc- that can include anyone who simply says the profession of faith. So in that sense, it's it's more inclusive than a more limited tribal identity where you're either part of a tribe or you're not, right? So that, so that kind of egalitarianism that anyone who is within the ummah or the, the fold of Islam is seen as equal in the eyes of God, but also equal in some sense in the temporal world, at least theoretically, not necessarily in practice, right? Um, so, but also the fact that you have things like the idea of shura, which means, um, consultation, which isn't like, which isn't like democracy because in a pre-modern era, people weren't talking about democracy in, in seventh century Arabia, but it does have a kind of democratic premise that to choose your leaders, it shouldn't be dynastic. It shouldn't be hereditary, that there has to be some kind of consensual process where people discuss and debate and choose. Um, And that, I think, is a precursor to modern democratic ideas. And that's actually how many modern Islamic legal scholars and philosophers have justified the embrace of at least procedural democracy. So because Islam can speak to these things um, and can adapt to them, that's why, you know, where I think this is in contrast, not necessarily as, uh, to Christianity per se, but certainly an, a religion like Hinduism, where you have kind of pre-modern conceptions of Hindu kingship, which is not democratic at all. And, uh, you know, monarch, the idea of monarchies is not a very modern, uh, at least for the most part, is not a very modern concept. So, you know, that's that's a, that's a contrast, one, one example of how that kind of plays out. I'm curious about how um, it sometimes the intersection of that modernity with our modern sort of secular concepts of democracy. If you look at Algeria, for example, in the 1990s and the descent into civil war when uh, the Islamist parties won and uh, there was a real tension among Muslims over how the country should run. And it's reflected now with the protests against Bouteflika and how the and not wanting to descend back into that violence and the question of how to move forward as a modern Muslim nation. How do you see that reflected in these questions of democracy and Islam? Yeah, well, so part of it is I feel like Muslims are kind of stuck. Um, and there's not an easy resolution because, um, well, so, like, one date that's important, really important to me and I think doesn't get as much attention is 1924, which marks the formal abolition of the last caliphate, the Ottoman caliphate. And ever since then, there's been this legitimacy vacuum in much of the Muslim-majority world, particularly in the Middle East and, and South and Southeast Asia, because once the caliphate disappears—and it wasn't particularly, like, 
powerful and it was it was mattering less and less in the lead up to 1924 but at least it existed as a theoretical construct and, and as something that people could aspire to but with the formal abolition it wasn't even it wasn't even there symbolically right so then muslims have to contend with what fills that vacuum and this leads to pretty much an ongoing struggle for legitimacy that i think continues to this very day Muslims have been trying to figure out how do you create or construct a legitimate state. Um, and because Muslims in the modern era no longer agree on foundational concepts, because basically now you have a built-in pluralism where you have Islamists on one hand and non-Islamists on the other, and one side can never conclusively defeat the other. You're always going to have both. And they don't they don't disagree on like narrow policy issues they disagree on what it means to be a state what it means to be egyptian what it means to be jordanian it's those fundamental who we are questions that we as americans are starting to get more into as of late um but those are really existential questions that people take really personally and it it makes politics feel very all or nothing because how do you split the middle when you're debating what it means to be who you are. Mm -hmm. And of course, the role of religion in public life is is a very personal thing for a lot of people. So what do you do about that? So when it came to what happened in Algeria in 1992, the start of the Civil War, basically the secular military intervened because um, Islamists were on the verge of winning by a pretty large margin um, the first free elections that Algeria had had. And there were enough people in Algeria who said, we're not willing to try this out because it will fundamentally change the nature of the state. And if you're a secular Algerian, um, you might prioritize secularism over democracy. And even if you're like, a, if you're a classical liberal, and this is a debate that we're having now um, in the US or Europe or in a lot of places, not all Americans prioritize democracy over liberalism. Um, some, and this could be classical liberalism or the more kind of left liberalism. But um, many Americans, I feel, prioritize some some version of small l liberalism over democracy. So if someone wins an election who they feel is an existential threat to America and and what it means to be American, then they may not be very respectful of that democratic outcome. And I think that's partly what we've seen, not just with Donald Trump in the U.S., but with the rise of right-wing populists in Europe, where people say, well, do we believe in democracy enough to actually let these people win? And especially if there's a risk of them winning over and over again. Mm -hmm. And um, not to go too off topic, but if, if Donald Trump wins in 2020, I think that that's going to be a real challenge because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's sort of like, order. you know, he, he's he's a, he's an ex, he's an exception to the rule. He's an aberration. And people can kind of content themselves with the idea that America is better. This is not who we are. He is not who we are. But if he wins a second time around, then he kind of does represent at least part of who we are. And that's going to be a real challenge to, to, I think, how people perceive democratic legitimacy. And in that sense, I think the Middle East and a lot of Muslim-majority contexts, they've previewed 
these very existential debates that I think like the rest of the world is now now grappling with, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a nice transition also to the other point that I wanted us to get to, which is the way in which a plank of modern populism in Europe and in the United States has been anti-Muslim sentiment. And you know, I think what's interesting is, of course, there was this sort of collective sigh of relief in in France in 2017 when uh, Emmanuel Macron won. But actually, Marine Le Pen took 38 percent of the vote, about, I think. And that Marine Le Pen got that far and was the other candidate, was an enormous moment for populism because what she had done, what many populists have done, is to adopt many things that we think of as liberal secular values. She talked about gender equality. She talked about gay rights. She even had extended a hand, which wasn't particularly well received, to the Jewish community. Um, I think that there's something about that where the construction was against foreigners, sort of generally, immigration generally, but really the underlying sentiment was around Islam. And in France, as as you know well, that actually goes back much further than Marine Le Pen. It goes back to 1989 with the first veil affair. So let's transition into looking at how Islam itself has become an essential plank of populists in Europe and a rallying cry. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, it's really interesting because, you know, European right-wing populist parties are are quite different from each other in a number of different ways. I mean, some of them are more economically liberal. Some of them have tried to outflank the left on welfare benefits. Some of them are like arch-secularists. Some of them are more Catholic traditionalists, as in Hungary and Poland. But the one thing that they, they all seem to share, and I haven't really been able to find an exception— uh, they all are kind of obsessed with the place of Islam and Muslim minorities, even to the extent where the quest, the, the Muslim question, if you will, has become the primary electoral cleavage in in certain in certain countries and in in certain recent elections. So, for example, uh, Hungary is a really interesting case because there's like barely any Muslims. I, I think it's about uh, 0.4% of the population. But in the 2018 elections, that was that was in some sense the number one issue. And Fidesz, the, the right-wing populist party, that's now the, that's the ruling party, um, they were able to really instrumentalize fears around Muslim refugees and they gained about a half a million votes in part because of that. Obviously, there's other factors that played into that, but they benefited from really doubling down on this message that the Muslim hordes are invading, basically, right? Um, I mean, they really do use that. I mean, they use that across the board in Vienna as well, yeah. which is around the question of the last siege of Vienna. That yeah, there's also this that. historical context <laughs> where, you know, there there was a siege of Vienna uh, several centuries ago. So that is part of the historical memory, right? Um, so, so like for me, when I think about where Europe is going, I think this question of how European societies accommodate, uh, both Islam and Muslim minorities will in some sense be like the fundamental question. And it's not just about Muslims. It's about what, what Muslims, you know, Muslims are in a sense, a metaphor for a bigger set of issues that people are, are very concerned about. Um, the decline of Christianity, uh, demographic changes, um, the stuff that you, what you just brought up about, um, you know, gay rights, gender equality, sexual freedom, Muslims, how you feel about Muslims can be a proxy for those those other issues because Muslims, for better or worse, are seen as a repository of conservative views 
And if you look at the polling, Muslims in Europe do tend to have more conservative views when it comes to things like gay rights, gender equality, so on and so forth. So you have this really interesting thing that you mentioned where right wing, some right wing populist parties have really embraced classical liberal ideas and some of it might be a bit cynical but they've said like we uh we right-wing populists we're the ones who can protect um the netherlands or mm -hmm. denmark from uh from these uh from muslims who are trying to take us back to this pre-secular age and they're challenging europe's gains on on sexual freedom and gay rights and this is part of what europe is and Muslims are the fundamental threat to that, which is quite different in the U.S., where we don't necessarily associate um, right-wing politics here with a kind of embrace of secularism or, or uh, you know, modern liberal ideas around gay rights or sexual uh, or sexual freedom. So that's a very interesting spin that we're seeing more and more. Um, which makes it a little bit more challenging to deal with because it's not only right-wingers in Europe who care about these secular and progressive gains. There are many on the left who say, well, you know, we fought for gender equality. We fought for women's rights. And now we're debating about like the burqa in, in, in public or people wearing the headscarf. I mean, I think that it's problematic to view the headscarf as intrinsically retrograde. Um, but that is that is how many on both the left and the right view it, especially in a country like France, which has this very aggressive mm -hmm, mm -hmm. secularism. So I think that what all this leads to is, and this is this gets to what how my prescriptive views and what. So if if you take my premise that there is something exceptional about Islam's role, not just in Muslim majority context, but also in some sense in Muslim minority context in Europe, because if you look at say France the levels of religious observance are much higher among French Muslims than they are among French non-Muslims. It's like a tremendous gap. It's around like 55% of French Muslims believe religion is very important to their daily lives, and it's like 10% for the overall population. Right. That's that's a gap. And it's, it's not illegitimate for people to be concerned about the implications of that gap. So where other people would say the solution is to basically try to pressure or force Muslims to be more like everyone else and secularize. I come at it from a very different perspective where because I because I acknowledge difference as something that's inherent to the world in which we live and it can't be undone, I think it's very important for us to be creative about how we accommodate more conservative expressions of faith. And this wouldn't just apply to Muslims, it would also apply to Christian conservatives here in the US or Orthodox Jews, certainly Orthodox Jews in Israel, which mm -hmm. is a very big debate that's going on there. Um, you can't stop people from believing in conservative interpretations of religion. These are deeply held normative preferences and we have to find ways to incorporate those preferences in in a productive, constructive way, right? Can I, Ashadi, yeah. would you say just a little bit more about the the immigration experience as you observe it happening there in France? What is it? A billion? A, 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 excuse me. A million Muslim immigrants have gone to Germany in the last several years. Uh, is it a half million in France? It's a large number. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but in France, there's this laïcité idea and you got to check it at the door at some level if you're part of the body politic in a different way than here in the States. And I know you've talked about this yeah. in other contexts about sort of Muslims in America experiencing high 
appreciation for being an American and high appreciation for Muslim yeah. practice simultaneously. So how, how do those experiences dif- differ? But I think, and then let me just mm-hmm. piggyback Please. on that for one second, which is that it's it's not about immigration, and that's what Shadi talks about a lot in his Brookings paper. It's it's about Muslims who are born in the country. Many, many, many of the Muslims that we're talking about in this case are second, third generation, but even the identifying of so-called second and third generation immigrants in and of itself is setting them outside the body politic. And so I think you need to address both of those things, how immigration has become the kind of boogeyman of this idea, but it's really not about immigration. It's about those who are already indigenous to France, that this is France. I mean, if we're going to stay with the French model, uh, but that France has moved away from a concept of pluralism that you were just describing, that we think of diversity as being something that enhances, uh, is a part of modern secular democracies, that all these diversity of, uh, of religious expression is part part of secular democracy. But France has moved away from that in 2004 with the first veil law and in subsequent laws since. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and um, so I, I talk about this in the, in the Brookings paper you mentioned, just in case listeners are, are interested. Uh, the title is The Role of Islam in European Populism. It's on the Brookings website. But basically, I, I say that it's like, as you said, Sarah, it's not this is not just about immigration. It's about integration, because a lot of Muslims in Europe are already citizens or are in the process of becoming citizens. Many of them were born in France or Denmark or wherever. So they're already part of these societies. It's not like they just came in, right? So it's immigration and integration. Um, and I think what's what's different about the USA compared to France, like in France, you kind of have to choose between, at least in, in some sense, between being fully Muslim and fully French. Because if you're a woman who, who wears the headscarf and you're not willing to take it off because you feel it's part of your personal relationship with God and that's not something you're willing, willing to give up, you're not going to be seen as fully French because just by virtue of wearing that piece of cloth on your head, you're challenging the French secular space as it's been constructed now for for, for many decades. So that to me is a, you're putting you're putting French Muslims in a very untenable position. Do we ever want to tell a citizen of a country that you have to choose between two identities that you hold dear? On the other hand, and not to idealize the American case, I mean, I tend to because I'm an American Muslim, and I and I think that the way we do things here is pretty good, you know, for all of its for all of its uh, flaws or imperfections. But uh, um, you know, American Muslims generally don't have to make that choice, and I very rarely see, especially American Muslims who are born here, have any issue with saying we're proud to be American. Where in Europe that becomes a more kind of fraught conversation that you have with people. Like, what does it mean to be Danish? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, especially when so indigenous Danes don't really see Danish Muslims as being actually Danish because um, here we have more ethnic or, or cultural conceptions of democracy where America is, you know, as we all know, is is not doesn't have that ethnic component or at least shouldn't have that ethnic component. So that's one thing that's really good here that you can uh, – because – there is public expression of religiosity in American public life. And even I worry that we're moving away from that, especially on the left. And that's something I'm pretty concerned about, that we're going to have one party that is increasingly uncomfortable with public religiosity. And, sir, I'd be curious, you know, um, how, how you kind of view this in the American context. But that is one change I think we have to worry about a bit. But, like, at least historically, 
I mean, I grew up with this idea that religion religion can be expressed in the public sphere. And it's something that we take pride in as Americans because we accept that and we want people to feel comfortable expressing their distinctive religious convictions in the public sphere, as obviously as long as they're not breaking the law or whatever. I mean, I have... I for a long time believed in American exceptionalism, and I, I still do. I, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I've given up on it. I, I still do. I've long thought that this model made more sense. I mean, when I I started looking at this in two thousand three, I want to say, and I thought, well, we get this better. We believe in a pluralistic society that it creates a more dynamic, uh, vibrant, and more elastic democracy that we can be who we are. I worry we're trending in the wrong direction. I mean, certainly if you look north to Canada, which is uh, debating now its own law of religious symbolism, which will, will if it passes, will ban uh, turbans, yarmulkes, and the hijab. It's yeah. particularly aimed at the hijab for people in public service. It's a weird law, though. Like, if you're already in your job, you can keep your hijab. But if you change jobs, you can't. I, I don't mm. know. It's mm. very strange. But honestly, looking at things like Charlottesville, right, which is adopting French-style nouveau uh, populism, which borrows from a kind of, in my mind, warped vision of liberalism, which is that you will not replace us. The chant that they had, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. The idea of replacement, that there is someone to be replaced and that person to be replaced is not a Muslim, not a Jew, uh, not a person of color and and not someone from the LGBT community. Yeah. That to me is a worrying, worrisome trend. And obviously we're seeing a rise in both anti-Semitic and, and anti-Muslim violence. Those things scare me around the elasticity of the American mm. experiment. Well, what would you say? So it's interesting, too, that if you look at um, which which communities in, in American public life, at least according to the polling, have uh, high levels of, of unfavorability towards Muslims, Christian evangelicals, unfortunately, come up fairly high on that. You know, even though you would think in theory that some Christian evangelicals would see common cause with Muslims if they see secularism as the greater overarching threat. I have noticed more of that on on maybe more the elite intellectual level in the work of someone like um, Rod Dreher, who has, who has kind of talked about the common interests between Orthodox Christians and conservative Muslims in America, that they shouldn't be fighting each other. They should realize that they share something fundamental and the real threat is this this secular homogenization of public life. So that's like an in, that's interesting because that's quite separate, obviously, from the Charlottesville stuff. But we still would associate that with the American right mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a part of the American right, which which does seem to have a problem with Muslims. So how how would you kind of view the role of Christian evangelicals in, in this? I'm I mean, just curious. Yeah. In the Trump administration era, I've been very surprised by the evangelical community. Uh, you know, 80 percent of the evangelical community voted for Trump. Uh, there is a small group of evangelicals in the sort of 20 percent space, which tend to be people of color. They tend to be younger that are really moving in a different direction. And they're the ones I'm always most interested in, which is the idea that the word of Jesus, for example, wouldn't be contrary to a refugee, would be welcoming the stranger. That to me makes more sense in a faith-based context than the 80% that have stood behind the administration in in questioning the role of immigration in America and questioning refugees. And for me, what's fascinating is one of the 
peculiarities and kind of benefits of American life has been that faith exists in public space. Now, for me, I'm happy to have it be separate. I'm an American Jew. I'm happy to have a religion and public life be separate in a in a political context. Wait, do, do you mean church? Do you mean church, church, church and, and state, state institutionally, like or do, or do you mean even just? Uh, Religion in public life, you would want to see less of. Like, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, I mean politics. Institution. Okay. I mean politics. Mm-hmm. I'm happy with secular politics. Um, that said, I like that in America you can be outwardly faithful. Yeah. I think there's something really wonderful about that that we can see that multiplicity of faith. And I'm surprised often that there isn't more intersectionality, to borrow a word from a different area of the mm. world right now, uh, between people of faith that we should actually see each other in some way as part of a faith-based community that has a lot more overlap than it has difference. Mm-hmm. That to me seems like a really rich space for exploration. Yeah. And I mean, it's the space that gives me hope when it exists. So my hope is to that. And that's, I mean, I'd like to feel in that space. I will say that my synagogue though right now, um, we have on Shabbat three policemen and we have metal detectors and and we need them. Yeah. So all these things are happening at the same time. I mean, I let my children, you know, run free in my synagogue. Should I not? Hmm. Hmm. You know, we had a conversation recently on this podcast that raised the the tension between sort of an equitable public pluralism view of faith's manifestation in the public square on the one hand versus a more homogenous, culturally privileged or morally kind of consistently outworking vision of of how faith translates into public life. You know, on the one hand, you have an instinct toward um, uh, public legal justice that applies for diverse points of view in the public square, because that's what you do in the public square, as opposed to in your church or in your family life. On the other hand, you have this idea that, no, 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 uh, our morality is privileged and therefore should be applied to all peoples because it's good for people. And that means we sort of, you know, uh, box others out. And I've been intrigued to see Shadi, your friendship with uh, Matthew Kamink mm. and others like him who are sort of more Christian pluralists um, who have a vision that is a little different than, I suppose you could say that 81% of those who actually voted in the last election, but, or, or you know, a little more like the elites or the Christian college types that, that um, you know, you were mentioning earlier, uh, who have a more sympathetic vision toward LGBTQ perspectives or um, uh, diversity or the way it plays out in public square that's different than just sort of uh, theocracy. Yeah. But I'd be curious to ask how you, how you think about interaction amongst faith groups, true faith groups that sort of ties to pluralism as opposed to a privileged position that boxes out others. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, I've been getting more and more into Christian pluralist ideas. And Matthew Kamink, I think, is is one of the most interesting writers in this regard. Um, And his book, um, Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration, is, is excellent on this. And it really appeals to me. Well, I mean, the short version uh, for just for for listeners to have some context is that that there's a kind of inherent imperfection in the temporal world until the return of Jesus Christ, and um, that perfection is only possible with that. And until then, we have to acknowledge a kind of humility and modesty about absolute claims in this world. And an important part of this, which I find very appealing, is the idea of the suspension of judgment, that we can have absolute moral convictions 
in this world, but judgment has to be maybe not suspended, but postponed or deferred until the next life and mm-hmm. kind of having a more conscious separation between, you know, you know, the city of man and the city of God, if you will. And Abraham Kuyper is a Dutch theologian who who was very instrumental in kind of outlining this way of, of looking at the world. But what it, what it means in practice is that you become comfortable with views that might otherwise seem very threatening to you. Um, and you kind of say, well, hey, I, I, I mean, it, in some sense, it seems really obvious that we should deal with people who have fun, mm-hmm. fundamentally different differences with the spirit of generosity. But it's apparently like really hard to actually do. But this this idea of Christian pluralism, the way that I view it, and there's also Muslim corollaries, um, which draw on some similar ideas about deferring judgment to God, that what that leads to is this kind of free freewheeling marketplace of ideas. It leads to, ideally, I suppose, a state that is less involved in in um, in religious production, and the state should just stay away from those debates. And you have a much more communal and localist approach, especially when it comes to matters of conviction. So you have then what you could kind of imagine is different faith communities that have some degree of religious autonomy if they want to have that autonomy. And there could be a place for intentional communities there. But they kind of they deal with other faith communities and they say, well, you're different and let's talk about that difference from from the very beginning. Let's not pretend that we're the same mm-hmm. because pluralism requires a deep an acknowledgement of deep difference and a respect for deep difference. Right. So you could so theoretically, if you want to take it to an extreme, you could have, um, uh, you know, a Christian uh, and who believes that I because I haven't accept, accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I might I might go to hell mm-hmm. in the afterlife. But that that's for the next life and that we could have a very friendly, respectful, whatever in, engagement in this life. Like that should theoretically be possible, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I guess my question around that um, and sort of to draw it back towards populism is how the ways in which the idea of a Christian nation have ended up feeling exclusive as opposed to inclusive. And I think that that gets to this question of populism again, which is, is the root of it being that if this is a Christian nation, and even in secular Europe, the idea of, and I mean, I think fascinating that many of the far-right populist parties have embraced the idea of a Judeo-Christian Europe, which is obviously very new, given the Holocaust. Uh, It was not that Judeo-Christian of a of a continent just very recently. I mean, so I think my question is how populism has built upon secularity by uh, by retaining a sense that Christianity, though, is somehow in line with the state and that way, therefore precipitating out people who are not part of that faith community. Yeah, yeah. It's almost a kind of cultural Christianity because if you look at the the right-wing populist parties that talk about Christianity, with maybe the exception of Hungary and Poland, which are more properly religious, that Christianity becomes a, a kind of a symbol. It's a kind of civilizational identity, and it doesn't have a lot of, a lot of theological mm-hmm. content because, again, there aren't a lot of people who are like very practicing right. in many of the countries that were talking about. So Christianity in this sense becomes fused with an ethnic conception 
of the state or society, which, you know, if I was a Christian, I'd, I'd feel like that's kind of I'd want to resist that because I think anytime you anytime you move in that direction, it undermines the, the theological, uh, the theological content of a religion. This is a conversation that ends with a question because the conversation's unfinished, and it's a much larger conversation that links to many threads. Uh, but I would just point out that if you want more, you can find both voices, both uh, Sarah's podcast and Shadi's on a number of podcasts. We'll link to several in the show notes. Um, you can find not only Islamic exceptionalism in 16, but Rethinking Political Islam in 2017, Temptations of Power 2014, and Sarah's terrific book, Paper Love searching for the girl my grandfather left behind. So we'll link to those in the show notes. And you guys can come back. Yeah, and we'll keep it going. To, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Josh, yeah, for having us. for a long time. Thank <laughs> you. If you like what you heard, there are follow-up links in the show notes. And we'd be grateful if you'd tell a friend about the podcast. Thanks for listening.